Good morning, church. You know, that seems to be a common introduction for our preaching team. You know, I don't know where that came from. I guess we're just anxiously wanting to say good morning, church. You know, that's how it goes. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We are continuing our study through the book of 2 Corinthians. And it's a series that we have titled The Autobiography of a Bleeding Heart. And our mission today is to get through verses 1 through 7. Um, kind of an interesting portion of scripture, uh, mainly in regards to preparing for a sermon. Because what you're going to find with this text is that it doesn't lend too much to much doctrine. This isn't a portion of scripture in which you're going to actually see Paul uh, doing some intentional teaching. He's not out declaring some spiritual truths. He's not, uh, he's not declaring specific commands um, or requests or even giving very specific instruction in this portion. So as a, as a preacher, it, it kind of tends to say, okay, you know, where do you, where do you go with this? You know, how, how do you bring application? Do you bring application? Because it, it's, it's really a, a personal portion of Scripture. It's a, it's a portion of scripture in which Paul just begins to declare his experience. And a lot of emotion comes out and a lot of um, a specific request for the church of Corinth comes out, but not one that we would actually apply to ourselves. So you kind of have this text out here and you're like, okay, what, what, how do you deal with it? You know? And you have to understand, and we've said this before, is that this book that we are studying is a letter, okay? It is a letter written to the church of Corinth. And there are going to be times that we read in the epistles things that are just very personal to the church of Corinth. They're not always applicable to us. There are times that it's very, very much has to do with relational things. It has to do with circumstantial things. And it being a letter, it has specific desires that the writer wants the recipient to actually hear. You know, and that's what we're dealing with in this situation. Is we're actually dealing with Paul writing just something in response to a circumstance that the church and Paul have gone through and has to do a lot with their relationship. You know, there are going to be times when we read through the epistles and we are going to see the writer claim truths about God. And we're going to stand there and say that truth that he is writing about is something that we are going to apply to our lives because it's a truth about God. We need to soak ourselves in with any truth about God. So we apply those certain truths that we listen to the, as the author declares. Then there are times that the author in a letter gives specific instruction to a church. Again, we'll step back and we'll say, okay, um, I can relate to the instruction that he's giving to the church and I can see the tendency of possibly our church needing that instruction. And so we will probably apply that same truth that the writer is writing to that church, to our church. But then there are times, like I said, that it's just simply personal. That what you are actually seeing is portions of the letter that are statements or um, salutations based on relationship, based on circumstances that are not applicable for us. So, for instance... You almost always, at the end of epistle, you'll see the final greetings. You'll see Paul or one of the other writers go and say, Hey, listen, 
say hi to that person for me. Or, you know, let me, this person who's with me says hi to you. Now those aren't necessarily be pulled out and say, okay, let's be super applicable with this. I mean, I've known people like that. I've known people, I've actually been under some teaching, and it's, it's pretty bad teaching, but they'll take the passage, like in 2 Timothy, where Paul tells Timothy, hey, next time you come, can you please, please bring my cloak that I left with this guy? You know, and, uh, and oh yeah, bring the books too. Okay, it's, that's, in, that's in Timothy, a book that we is we say is inspired and you'll hear this preacher come up and say okay you know we need to over spiritualize this we need to spiritualize this that that cloak is really the cloak of encouragement and paul is just asking for that because he's discouraged and, and so P- timothy's going to come in encouragement no what that is is paul just wants his coat that he left for someone to borrow and he's asking timothy to bring it and in and in some in some comparison that's what we're dealing with here paul is simply just sharing and expressing based on his current circumstance and relationship with the church of corinth he's expressing his experiences he's expressing his emotions and we shouldn't do anything other sometimes than just see it it's just allow the text to just display what's happening and for us to overapply can be a very dangerous thing. It can be a very dangerous thing for me um, because there's a tendency to want to try to find something that's wonderful and big in the text. And sometimes it's just relational. And I think that's what we're going to actually see with this text, but I don't think it's going to be unbeneficial for us. I see a couple things that as we study through this portion that I, I think is going to be extremely beneficial. Number one is that we are going to, it's going to provide for us a much deeper understanding of the underlining te- context. Now, whenever you're looking through a letter, an epistle, you, you want to ask the question, why is the writer writing this or saying this? I mean, what's going on in the church that makes him want to say these things to the recipient? You know, and for us to step back and say, okay, let's get a big picture of this. Let's understand the background. And here with our scriptures, we actually get the conclusion, like the last bit of information that we need on why Paul is actually writing this letter. And so we're going to actually see that. And what's neat is we're going to actually see the emotion. By going back and seeing the full context, we're actually going to be able to put ourselves in the emotions of Paul. And it's going to help us understand a little bit more when he says, I am rejoicing, what that really means. But then kind of a, a, a neat thing that we get the opportunity to benefit from is the observation of a godly man dealing with conflict in relationships. I don't think this was necessarily the point of the text at all, Um, but what happens when Paul just expresses his emotions and expresses his experience is we get the biography, the autobiography, of how a godly man lives his life in the midst of great conflict in relationships. And man, this is so important for us because guess what if you didn't know yet you're sinful i'm sinful 
and we are in constant dealings with sinful people. So as long as we are here in our unglorified state, we will struggle with relationships and conflict, and we will always experience conflict in relationships. And so having an example like Paul, who is going through some immense amount of pain, and being able to step back and say, look at how he handles it, is so beneficial for us. You know, and it's so neat because often when we're dealing with conflict with relationships or when we try to talk about it, we try to talk about it on the side as the person trying to prevent being the conflict. So what can we do to make sure that we aren't the person creating conflict in our relationships? Well, this is kind of neat because this is on the perspective of the person who was offended. How does Paul deal with conflict when he's done nothing wrong and everything is an offense to him? How should we deal with it? It's not necessarily going to be what he's pointing out or he's trying to teach, but it's neat to be able to step back and just as it flows freely, being able to observe how Paul deals with that. So there's going to be two benefits I think we're going to see, and we're going to dive into it, um, but let's pray and ask God to, to lead us to the, to, to the proper view of this text and not let us go any further than that. So let's ask the Lord. Father, uh, I want to be true to the text. I don't want to overapply. I don't want to go somewhere that um, your spirit hasn't intended for us to go. So protect me from that. Um, and I would ask that as we gain a deeper understanding of this book, that it will provide help for the next few sermons as we continue to go through it. Um, um, let us have a bigger view of what Paul went through so that we can understand the next few passages even more. We ask this in your name. Amen. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 7, if you're there, it's up on the screen. Therefore, having these promises, what promises are those? If you look at verse 18 of chapter 6, it says, I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So therefore, having those promises beloved and a sweet word there you can kind of feel the tone of what paul is saying there even though it's a very strong passage a strong imperative you can hear the tone of the of the of, of paul um, talking to his beloved and he says having these promises beloved let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit perfecting holiness in fear Justin had concluded with this passage from last week on chapter 6, and the portion of scripture that he had discussed was the portion of scripture in which he, which Paul was talking to the believer that he would not, that he would be in contact with certain things but not contaminated by them. The verse that we use that we are all very um, familiar with is the verse in chapter 6, verse 14, where Paul says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness? So Paul is saying, listen, you know, don't be in contact with those things that are contaminating you. We don't need to have any part of them. 
We want to be separated from them. We can't have uh, an unequal yoke. If they're contaminating you and affecting you, get rid of it. So in conclusion, he comes to verse 1 of chapter 7 and he says, cleanse yourself from anything that's contaminating your holiness. Get rid of it. Have no part of it. We want to be pursuers of holiness. And so anything that's affecting our relationship with God needs to be removed. And obviously for us, there's tons of application that we're going to go with in that passage. Tons of it. We could sit here and list the many things in our lives that we could say, wow, we probably should separate ourselves from it. But my question to you is, why is Paul specifically saying this to the church of Corinth? What is the church of Corinth in contact with that is contaminating their holiness, that is affecting them? Why does Paul feel the need to tell them this truth? Where are they at? So to get there, what we're going to do is we actually want to get the full background, a full picture of everything that has happened up to this point. And this is going to accomplish two things. It's going to, number one, lead us to the finality of our verses here. That's going to give us our last piece of background. Okay? And it's also, like I said before, it's going to create an opportunity for us to experience what Paul has experienced. And when he begins to declare what emotional state he's in, we're going to feel that emotional state. And we're going to understand in a deeper way from this point on a lot of the reasons why Paul is sharing and declaring some of the things that he wants us to share. So, and again, the last thing we're also going to see is we're going to be able to see Paul's conduct played in the in the full scenario of the setting so let's start at the beginning obviously this is where we're at we are in the writing of second corinthians so this is my timeline that i created it is not to scale it's not like i had figured out like the time between each it is pretty well divided between spaces if if you guys noticed that i'm sure you did so but anyways we're going to see this from paul's perspective Again, this is Paul. He's currently writing 2 Corinthians, so this is where we're at. And so we're going all the way back to the beginning, to the start of the church, and we get to the first. This is, Paul was the one who founded this church. So if you move to Acts 18, you don't have to move to Acts 18, but this is where we see it. Paul enters the church of Corinth, and for any of you guys who are familiar with this city, this is a city that of much immorality, okay? Tons of godlessness, sin, debauchery, and it's just a very dark, dark place. And Paul comes on his second, second missionary journey to the place of Corinth. And he walks and he does what he normally does is he goes to the synagogues and he starts preaching the gospel. Now, what was neat about this in Acts is you'll read that God specifically said to him, be bold, be brave, don't be afraid, for I am going to protect you as you do this. So the hand of God is in this journey. And Paul begins to preach the gospel in the synagogues. And what begins to happen? People start to get saved. So Paul's sitting here and he's preaching. And based on his testimony, he starts to see people who once were heading towards darkness. They're pursuing immorality. They're pursuing sin. And now, based on Paul's testimony, people start to repent. 
And for any of you guys who have actually experienced this, of being the person who God uses for the conversion of someone who is lost, you'll know that there's no greater joy than this. To see someone who is heading in one completely direction and God uses your testimony to speak the power of the gospel and they say, I want that, there is no greater joy. The thrill, I don't think, is anything to be compared to. And this is what Paul saw. He saw this in these people, as people who are lost, coming to know Christ. And then he says, well, i got to spend a year and a half here. You're going to see here, in a year and a half, he spends mentoring, discipling, teaching this church up into maturity. And, and this is something that the love that you will experience for people that you have, started, have seen from babes into maturity in the Lord, there is not a sense of love that you will experience more than that. You could come in as a minister and you could come to an established church and start to minister to that body and you will feel a sense of love and care for them. But for the people who you were there from the start, the people whom you taught and, and, and poured your life to, to see them grow into maturity, into, into adults in the faith, those people will always have a special place in your heart. It's so deep, it's so rooted. I had the privilege of, um, uh, back in Ohio, I had the privilege of um, God using me in the life of someone who was completely lost. His name was Dustin. And the first time I met him, he was at work and he puts on the facade that every factory worker or construction worker puts on as being a man in, in all of their, you know, their normal conversations. And I remember he invited my wife and I to, to their, their bar and Hannah and I was like, hey, this is a good opportunity. We'll go and we'll, we'll shine a light and you could tell he was kind of curious while the other guys that were there were just absolutely getting wasted. He kind of remained a little standoff and, and observant of us. And Dustin had later, you know, started building a relationship with me. And as, as opportunity to lend, I, I got to present the gospel to him. And uh, Dustin, at that moment, it was like, yeah, that's what I want. And this is a guy who was stuck in much sin. I mean, he was stuck in sexual sin, in alcohol, and greed, and it was deep in him. But this was real. What he saw and what he wanted was like, that is what I want. I'm going after it. And the thrill that I had in seeing him make that decision was amazing. But to see him make strides towards obedience... I don't think there was anything that I felt more joy about. You see, you're, as Paul will say, it, he's the father of this church. So they were his children in the sense that he was the one who actually was the one who brought them up based on his testimony. So your children that you kind of bring to the Lord, 
they kind of control your emotions. Their highs become your highs, their lows become your lows. And I remember him coming up and saying one day, he's like, hey, Chris, I, I, I got rid of all my alcohol. You know, it was such a struggle for me. I just got rid of all of it. And I remember just beaming for him, just saying, you're doing, he's like, this is really hard, but I'm going after it. I remember just beaming. And then I remember a few days later, him coming up to me and saying, hey, Chris, I failed. Um, you know, I, my ex-girlfriend came and, well, you know, I failed. I, I, I felt for him. I, my, my, my countenance just dropped. I ached for his sin and where he went. These are, who, these are the people that Paul cares for the most. These are the people that he has watched come from sinners to mature believers and he loves them deeply his ties to them are extreme and after a year and a half you're going to build a very very close relationship with these people and that's where paul starts paul starts here and after a year and a half he decides to leave. So he left for Ephesus. And we, we read this again in Acts 18 through 9. He's full of joy. He's full of hope. He's full of celebration. Just this great ecstasy. And he's so much joyful for what God has done through him that he makes this, this um, Nazarite, um, what you call just a, a Nazarite, man, I can't even remember what it is, vow. Thanks, thanks, Jacob. Yeah, basically what he did is he actually cut his hair and he made just the celebra celebratory act towards God as saying, thank you for what you did. I am so happy of the work that happened in 1 Corinthians. I'm so joyful. Here is my vow to you. I'm going to be committed to you through it all. And so Paul lives in, in this current state in upper ec ecstasy and absolutely thrilled. But what he begins to go as time begins to move on is he begins to hear of remnants of the church's association with immoral brothers. People who claim to be Christians, but yet are living immorally. So he writes what we get, this lost letter. This is what we'll see in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. He hears of this issue. He hears that, man, there's starting to become some struggle within the church. And so he wants to nip this in the butt. He wants to take care of it right now. So he writes this letter that we actually don't have. But it's a, red, a letter that's just referencing, hey, I told you, don't associate with those who are claiming to be brothers but are yet living immorality. He wants to make sure the church does not fall. He wants to nip anything that could cause a potential hazard in the butt right away. He does not want them to lose their high standard. He does not want them to go anywhere other than up and towards Christ. And at this point, I would imagine this is where Paul starts to get kind of concerned for the church. It's, it's something that Paul is constantly concerned about. You'll read in other epistles like Galatians where Paul says, Man, I hope I did not labor in vain. Or the Thessalonians where he's like, man, we were so anxious to hear about your faith. We're wondering whether or not you're going to fall or, or what. I'm going to send Timothy so he can encourage you and keep you up in your faith. He was always worried about the faith of his children. He did not want to see them stumble. He did not want to see his effort go to waste. He did not want to see Satan come in and destroy all the work that he had. 
And at this point, at this lost letter, these remnants, he's, he's starting to wonder, am I going to be concerned? These are the people I love so deeply. These are the people I care for so much. I don't want to see them lost. I do not want to see them fallen. But unfortunately, things did not get better. For this is when he receives a bad report from some of those that are in Chloe's household. He starts hearing that the church is not only dealing with immorality with a brother, but he's also, there's divisions, there's lawsuits, there's immorality, there's improper use of the spiritual gifts. There are problems galore within this church that he once poured his life into. And his heart is starting to break. And so he immediately writes another letter, and this is our letter of 1 Corinthians, that simply addresses all of these issues that he's hearing. He's hoping to, to resolve them immediately. He's hoping that his rebuke or his, his rebuke to, this, to, to these issues will clean everything up. And you can, you can hear the deep longing for this letter in 1 Corinthians. You can kind of hear the emotion out of Paul when he says at the very end, he tells the church, he says, watch, please stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong, let all that you be done, let all that you be, let all that you do be done in love. It's just a plea to the church. Stay strong. Stay in the faith. Be brave. Keep at it. After writing 1 Corinthians, he moves on and he actually sends Timothy. And mainly probably to assess the situation. And uh to get a feel of, okay, how are they dealing now with the rebuke? How are they dealing with the letter of 1 Corinthians? Are they repenting? And then probably from Timothy, he actually hears the worst news of all. He hears of the news of that false teachers have arisen within the church and that a mutiny of Paul has begun within the church. You see, false teachers had arrived and when Timothy's there, he sees these false teachers and he's seeing what's happening. The false teachers are working extremely hard to discredit Paul. They want to attack Paul. They want to attack his, his character. They want to attack his authority. And he, they want to attack his message. And you know what they do? They start to claim slander towards him. They start to say, now Paul, he's immoral. He's just simply greedy. Everything he's doing is for greed and selfishness. He doesn't really love you. He doesn't really care for you. And you know what? He's a false teacher. And if we're honest with ourselves, if someone came up and said that about us, if our enemies came up and said that about us, we would be angry, but we would expect it. But the pain for Paul wasn't so much that the false teachers were saying that, was what happened within the church. And what happened was that the church started to accept that message from the false teachers. They started to believe that Paul was immoral. They started to believe that he was an apostle that he didn't have authority, and that he, they, and that he, was, only considered of, he was only concerned of his own interests and not theirs. This brought the church 
into opposition towards Paul. This crushed Paul. It's as though your closest member in your family looks at you and says, I don't believe you are who you are. I don't believe you love me. I just think you're a sinful person. And everything that you stood for and you fought for and you wanted to represent to them, they didn't care. Paul gave his entire life to this church and now they are attacking him. Paul cannot believe this. He cannot believe his dear children who he dedicated his life to are now in opposition towards him. So he actually goes to Corinth. That's where you see what we call the painful visit. And in the painful visit, he comes to assess to see what goes on. And not only does he see all the issues of 1 Corinthians, but he sees the false teachers. And then he actually deals face to face with this opposition. As we piece together some of the things that we see through uh, the scriptures, we get this picture of a man who actually, within the church, actually stands face to face to Paul and opposes him. Probably claiming the same things that he actually, that the false teachers have claimed. And Paul describes his visit a, as, as a, a sorrowful visit. This absolutely crushed him. He couldn't handle it so much that he said that I, in, in 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 2 1, he says, I, I'm not going to come to you again in sorrow. I can't do it. I can't handle another visit like that. And so, at a last-ditch effort, he leaves, and he comes back, and he writes what we've talked about a few times. He writes this severe letter, and almost in a last-ditch effort to try to provide restoration, to try to get these people back in utter pain, in utter um, just sorrow, he says, in tears and anguish, I wrote to you. And this is Paul, I mean, he's, he is mourning he is weeping over the loss of his children and the way they are treating him and so he writes the severe letter it's their it's his final effort it's his harsh rebuke it's his tough love and it's all in the hope that they would repent and come back and so what we find out is that he sends titus and it could be that he sends Titus with the letter, or it could be that Titus goes after they've had the letter, and Titus is there to kind of basically get the report on what has actually happened. And, um, and this is where our text picks up. It's uh, picking up on our last point where the sending and the finding of Titus. So we're at the spot where they've had the letter, they have read it, Paul is crushed, he is broken. And Titus now should be making his way back to get the report, to give the report to Paul. And so Paul sets out to meet him. And actually our text, our text starts in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Um, he started sharing the story in chapter 2. And then for the next past five chapters, he kind of took a break. And he started sharing about his ministry. So we're going to start in chapter 2 verse 12. And again, I just want you to think about the emotions at, his, at this point. The emotions that Paul feels, um, doubt um, that he should have ever sent that letter. He's wondering whether or not that, that's going to work. Um, anxiety, how are they going to respond? Fear, is Titus okay? 
Are they going to persecute Titus? Are they going to kill Titus? Um, he's my brother. I love him too. And, and all of this emotion that he is dealing with is at the state in which we're seeing here. And we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, and this is what it says. He says, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord. And so, first thing we see is he comes to Troas, and a door is opened up for him. Now, for Paul, this is, this is the, the things that Paul lives for. Ministry opportunities. The Lord is working. A door is wide open. There's an opportunity to proclaim the truth here in Troas. But look what it says. But I had no rest in my spirit. Why? Because I did not find Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed from Macedonia. He could not rest. A wide open door for ministry, and the anxiety and the stress was so much that he couldn't even do ministry. He couldn't even succeed with that open door. So he says, I had to leave. Because I couldn't find Titus. Titus is supposed to be here. This was our meeting point. But now that he's not here, I'm worried. Where is he at? What's wrong? The church of Corinth, is it over? And so he sets out to go and find Titus. He's like, I am going to go to Macedonia. I can't stay here. And that's where it picks up in, verse, in, in, in chapter 7. I think most of us at this point can understand, can understand this emotion, can understand this anxiety. Have you ever been in a controversial um, relationship or in communication? You sent out that text that was a little controversial, and you're like, man, how are they going to respond? And anytime the, your phone goes off, you kind of jump, and you're so anxiously awaiting it. And I remember, this is a kind of a funny story in a very tense time, but what the heck. Um, I remember when Hannah and I were, um, I suppose we could say dating, it, we were in a program called the 412 Commission and we actually weren't allowed to date. Um, so it kind of make things hard for, you know, a smooth guy like I was to try to figure out how to, how to win her over. And here was the issue is that at the very beginning of the program, we had made our affections known to each other. Um, she knew that I liked her and I knew that she liked her. And I, I knew that she liked me. I knew that she liked her. She was pretty, pretty self-confident, you know. But, um, but you know, we, we have to build this relationship kind of in a weird way. You know, we had kind of, you know, had to be secret about when we were going to get together. Not secret. I always had to be with someone, which was kind of stinky because there was 12 other guys on the team that all liked Hannah, you know. And they were allowed to be alone with Hannah. They were allowed to take her home or, or have conversations with her. But because I liked her, I wasn't allowed. And so um, it, it, be, it made a man get weird, you know. Um, you had to figure out some ways to get your attention. And I, honestly, I started just becoming very weird um, to try to get her attention. And I remember it came to um, Thanksgiving break and she was leaving for like, a week, and it was after a period of time that I just did whatever I could to get her attention. I think it turned her off, and she said, you know what, I'm not sure about this relationship thing, and I was like, okay, whatever, I'm good, 
you know. But I was, at, she's like, you know, I'm going to spend this week and I'm going to think about it and then I'll get back with you. And, and I remember that week I was just a ball of stress. Um, I tried to play it off like it wasn't bothering me, but that's all I could focus on. All I could focus on is what is she going to say when she gets back? Am I still going to have that, that girl that I, that I love? Is she still going to receive me? And everything was just, I was built of anxiety the entire time. It's what Paul is at. He, he can't focus. He can't do ministry. He has to find Titus. What's going on with the church? Then we come into chapter 7, verse 5. Nothing changes. He says, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were, we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts and inside were fears. Again, he came and he could still not find Titus. And he describes it this way. He describes it that on the outside were conflicts. This is most likely just his normal persecution he faces while he does his ministry. You'll see it actually in chapter 8. Paul talk about in Macedonia that they had a great trial of affliction. So this is his outward affliction that he faces whenever he does ministry. But on the inside, he was, he was having issues. And the inside, he said were fears and this word fears is the in the greek is the is phobos which is kind of the word where we get um phobias and um paul is just again as we stated it's just full of fear where's titus what's going on with the church i i can't hardly handle it and probably the best way of describing what he's going through is when it says in verse 6, the God who comforts the downcast, or that word downcast in a lot of your translations is actually depressed. The current state in which Paul is in is in a state of depression. He, he is struggling. He is sad. And so much of what he normally can do is affected because the lack of joy that he has at this time. It sure tells you something about Paul's heart, doesn't it? I mean, it really does tell you about how much he loved this church. I mean, he says it in chapter 2 when he says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote you with many tears, not to grieve you. He didn't write to them to grieve him. He didn't say, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you feel bad. I want you to realize what you did wrong. No, he says, I wrote this that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. He is depressed because he loves them so deeply. And like Justin said last week, there's nothing more painful than unrequited love. And this church is crushing his heart. It's, this is the reason, guys, why you read the author of Hebrews, when he says in Hebrews 13, hey, obey those who rule over you and be submissive. For they watch out for your souls as those who, who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. He pleads for the church to be submissive and obey your leaders. Let them minister in joy because when their joy is robbed, it's unprofitable for you. So he's depressed, he's full of fears, and he's greatly anxious, but he still serves in Macedonia. And then comes verse 6. Nevertheless, 
God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. Our God is good. He knows exactly what we need and sometimes it's not this amazing supernatural miracle and something sometimes what we need is something so simple and practical and for Paul what he needed was to see Titus he saw his dear brother and you can just picture a smile break on 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 Paul's face his his step is quickened a little his heart races and his his body relaxes because Titus has arrived, he's alive, he's well, he's good. And I suppose for a sense, that would be, his arrival would be enough to just comfort him, no matter what the report was about the church. You know, because at least he'd have his brother to cry on if it was bad news. At least he'd have someone to commiserate with. But he's, this is his deep friend, his co-worker, that he finally sees as much longed-for report that he's awaiting but the good news is it wasn't just his arrival that comforted him. Look at what it says, verse 7, And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me. At this moment, he sits and he talks to Titus, and Titus says, Paul, they're broken. They, they want you back. They realize what they did wrong. And they, they're zealous for you. And they want a relationship back. And for someone who loves his people, like Paul loves his people, you can imagine what just fell off of him. You can imagine the, the joy, the, the peace, the, the excitement, where he says, he says, for me, so that I rejoiced even more. That rejoicing was something that I don't think the words could actually describe. He is, he is just elevated with joy. I had, um, I had, Hannah, again, going back to Ohio, we had a moment in which we were youth pastoring. Right before we came here, we were youth pastoring. We we're youth pastoring in this small church where all ministers go um, who want to be godly, they go to Ohio. Right, Larry? You know, anyone who wants to be extremely godly, you go to Ohio. You know, but anyways, we were in this youth group, and this is, a youth, uh, this is a church that did not have a youth group, and Hannah and I had started the youth group from scratch. And much like Paul, we have grown to really love these people. We had grown to see some of the kids grow up into some awesome kids and um, it's even the adults we had built some really strong relationships with. And we, uh, uh, we had planned after two years to stay. And we were saying, you know what, I think this is where we want to be. We want to actually stay. And so we, we actually went out and we um, looked for a house and we found a house that we were going to purchase. And uh, come to find out that the house that we actually signed for and we were getting ready to close on was a, a, was a sister of a, of a lady that went to our church. And I remember that Sunday when she found out that we were going to purchase the house, she said, you don't realize how awesome this is. Like, I've been praying for my sister that she would have, she could sell her house, and we're so excited that you guys are going to purchase the house. We're thrilled. And Hannah, like, yeah, it's, it's really neat. And um, time went by, a little bit of time went by, and Hannah and I started to think, 
wow, you know, I don't think this is necessarily where God wants us. We started seeing doors close on us. We started seeing uh, things that we thought were for sure just fall. And we're like, what's happening here? Why is this occurring? And Hannah and I spent some time in prayer and we're like, you know what, we don't think this is where God wants us. And we had made our decision. We're like, we're going to head up to Alaska. And uh, as we started sharing our decision to that church, we actually received much conflict. Um, there were many people that we love dearly come to us and say, you guys are liars. You guys are, you guys never even loved us. And our hearts broke because it was in, nothing more than the opposite of that. And we went through this week where it just was stressful, trying to explain to people why we're making this decision and where we're going. And then I remember that Sunday when we were going to announce it, and it all clicked to me, there's Margaret. We had to cancel out of the purchase of the home. It's putting her sister in a really bad spot. She's going to be furious. And all of the emotions that we had felt through that week and pain that we had felt, I, I was so nervous, but I knew I had to go and talk to Margaret. I knew I had to deal with it. And after the sermon, you know, I went up to her in, in tears. I said, Margaret, I am, I am so sorry. And she, she wrapped her arms around me and she said, I am not mad at you, Chris. I love you and I support you. The weight that fell off, the joy that I felt from the reception of someone that I love, I can't even explain to this day. That's what Paul is feeling. And that is the state in which he is penning this letter currently. He is full of comfort, as you've seen throughout the epistle thus far. He is full of joy. But he's still not ignorant. He still understands that the battle is not over. And those, those false teachers are still around. And so he pleads with them in, in verse 2, going back to verse 2. And he says this, open your hearts to us. And he says this, he says, listen, we've done nothing wrong. We've wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. And this is amazing because, again, Paul was the one who was offended. He has not done anything wrong. He's, his conscience is clear. But do you see where he's at? He's not over here saying, okay, I know that they know they're guilty now, so now I'm going to wait for them to come and say they're sorry. Paul pursues the restoration. Paul pursues the relationship. He has continually done this through this entire process as he's gone after his children. I want them back. And brothers and sisters, man, we can learn so much from that behavior, from that character trait. There's a trait that says, you know, I could be offended. I am in pain. I am hurting, but I'll do whatever it takes to have you back. And he goes on, he says, I do not say this to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I, you, we are for the church of Corinth, no matter what you've said to us, no matter what you've done to us. 
Great is my boldness of speech towards you. That word boldness can be translated, great is my confidence of speech towards you. I believe in you. And great is my boasting on your behalf. I am praising you. I am boasting about the church of Corinth. There is no bitterness. It's amazing. There's nothing but love. And I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulations. This was a man of godly traits who no matter what he felt, he put it aside for the people who he loved. Why? Because God comforted him with the great news of Titus. And so as we go on, you're going to see so much of that story be talked about. We're going to see what has just happened be played out. And a lot of the things that Paul addresses in these next few chapters are in direct relation to this context. And so let's pray and ask God as we continue to go through that study for the next few weeks, that we continue to grow in our understanding. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the example of Paul. And uh, I would ask that you would strengthen us to be imitators of him as he was imitators of you. Uh, and allow us, as we continue our study through the, through the book of 2 Corinthians, to grow, to be broken where we need to be broken, to apply truths where um, those truths need to be applied, and that our church can continue to see how we should move biblically. Thank you again. In your name we pray. Amen.